Du lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Jeg hedder Lise Barkhansen. Tilbage i 2014 havde vi Shimamanda Ngoti Aditi på besøg i en propfyldt dronningssal, hvor der var ventelister for at komme ind. Hendes stemme og hendes budskaber fra dengang er næsten endnu mere aktuelle i dag i forhold til spørgsmål om diskrimination, identitet og mangel på ligestilling. Den nigerianske forfatter er for længst blevet verdenskendt litterært navn, og hun fik sit store, helt store gennembrud med romanen Half of a Yellow Sun, og den er fra 2006. Og efterfølgende kom endnu en litterær succes, Amerikaner. Den er oversat til mere end 25 sprog og har vundet utallige priser. Men i denne podcast, der skal du høre Shimamanda Ngoti Aditi i samtale med kulturjournalisten Sønder Rifbjerg, og Aditi fortæller hende om det komplicerede forhold mellem Afrika og USA i nutidens globaliserede verden. Så præcis som det fremgår i hendes roman Amerikaner. Amerikaner er grundlæggende en fortælling om længsel efter at høre til, og Aditi viser blandt andet, hvordan hår, helt specifikt afrohår, får politisk betydning og bliver en måde, hvorpå læseren forstår problemstillingerne om race og køn. Undervejs læser skuespilleren Ellen Helling Sø passage op fra bogen Amerikaner. Rigtig god fornøjelse. I thought the first thing I would ask you, because uh, it, many things that are obvious to you are more strange to us. And one of the things is, uh, the dis- I mean, if... If I wake up a bit tired and somebody asks me, what is the difference between an African-American and an American-African? I would think, did I hear right? Was, is, is it a word game? What is the difference? The difference is, I mean, I should say that it's, it's sort of in half invented. I mean, I, I kind of made it up in the novel, but it, it reflects a real difference because the, the African-American is a word I would use to describe the person of African descent whose ancestors were brought forcefully to the, to the US as slaves. And an American-African um, is a person of African descent who came, uh, who's, or, or who came or whose who's, uh, family came more or less willingly. <laughs> <laughs> so at least not on a slave ship. But this is, of course, a very important issue in your new novel. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I've, I've heard you say somewhere that uh, race is America's original sin. And I thought that was fantastic. Can you say something about that? <laughs> See, I come up with fairly good lines, and then I don't you know do. what to do with them. <laughs> you do. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> I... I guess I think what I was trying to say is that race is the one is 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 the major organizing principle of American history, American American life, really, and it's the one also the one thing that Americans are most uncomfortable about. It's the subject that they circle around. Um, it's the subject that they invent codes to talk about. Um, it's it's the subject that I think is still very unfinished. It's a subject that many Americans prefer to think that it has to do with the past, but it's very much the present. And and I think it's also the most misunderstood, the most potentially contentious 
social subject in America? Actually, one should study American history as an immigrant before coming to America to understand this strange code of, yeah. of a hidden racial yeah. problem. Yeah. And if you don't, as I didn't, because I went to America very ignorant of all of those things. And, and I think it's one thing to have watched American television, as I did, as I think everybody in the world does, <laughs> and to have read American books. But to arrive in the US and, um, you know, for, for the first time to be called sister by, by an African-American man, my first thought was, don't call me your sister. I don't know what this is all about, you know. And, and also just to learn these very subtle things. Half the time I didn't quite understand why people got upset when somebody said something about, you know, expressions like tar baby, or when somebody made a joke about watermelon yeah. or fried chicken. What's up with watermelon? Yeah, and I would think, why, why is this a problem? <laughs> and I think also just the, the assumption that I was supposed to be angered because I was black, but I didn't understand why I was supposed to be angered. And um, so it took for me, it, took, it really took going to read and learn about American history. Because when I went to the US, I, had, I just didn't know. I had, I had read Roots and seen the film. You thought but, America was the Cosby show? I thought black Americans lived like the Cosby show. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's, quite, that's kind of sweet. It is, but you know, when you think about it, if that's the one thing you see, because really the, the sort of the portrait of black American life that I had seen and that I identified with and liked was the Cosby show. So you can imagine my surprise when I... <laughs> Even I wanted to live with the Cosby's, <laughs> so I can understand why. <laughs> Tonight we have uh, Ellen Hillingsjö to read us in Danish uh, two extracts from your novel, and just to get in the mood, because it was just out now here, and I'm sure a lot of you have already read it, but so that... Uh, yes! Uh, and it's a wonderful novel. but. Now you can hear how it sounds in Danish, and it's, it, we, we'll just take the beginning. Well, she's good at languages. So, Ellen, if you are ready, we will listen to you. Om sommeren lugtede Princeton ikke af noget som helst. Og selvom Efemilu holdt af de mange træers grønne stilhed, de rene gader og de prægtige huse, de stilfærdigt dyre forretninger og den tyste, varige fornemmelse af fortjent ynde, var det fraværet af lugt, der tiltalte hende mest. Måske fordi de andre amerikanske byer, hun kendte godt, alle havde haft en særlig lugt. Philadelphia var præget af en duft af verdensgang. New Haven lugtede forsømt. Baltimore lugtede af salt, Brooklyn af solbagt affald. Men Princeton havde ingen lugt. Her kunne hun lige at trække vejret dybt ind. Hun holdt af at jagtage de lokale, som kørte udpræget belevent og parkerede deres nyeste modeller ved de økologiske købmandsbutikker i Nassau Street, eller ved sushi-restauranterne, eller isbutikkerne, der bød på 50 forskellige varianter, inklusiv rød peber. Eller ved posthuset, hvor overstrømmende personale sprang ud for at tage imod dem ved indgangen. Hun holdt af universitetsområdet, der emmede af viden. 
og af de gotiske bygninger med slyngplanterne på murene, og sådan som alting i tusmørket forvandlede sig til en spøgelsescenari. Mest af alt holdt hun af, at hun i alt den afslappede overflod kunne lede som om, hun var en anden. En, der havde fået en særlig invitation til at komme ind i denne hederkronede amerikanske klub. En, der smykkede sig med vidshed. Men hun var ikke glad for at skulle tage til Trenton for at få flettet håret. Det var urimeligt at forvente at finde en afrikansk hårsalon i Princeton. De få sorte, som hun havde set på stedet, havde været så lyse i huden og så glatte i håret, at hun slet ikke kunne forestille sig dem med opflettet hår. Alligevel spekulerede hun en stejhed aften, hvor hun ventede på toget ved Princeton Junction Station, over hvorfor der i virkeligheden ikke var et sted, hvor hun kunne få flettet sit hår. Chokoladen i hendes håndtaske var smeltet. Et par andre mennesker stod også og ventede på perrongen, hvide og magre og i kort luftigt tøj. Manden, tættest på hende, spiste en isvaffel. Hun havde altid opfattet det som en smule uansvarligt, når voksne amerikanske mænd spiste isvafler. Særligt, når de gjorde det i al offentlighed. Da toget om sider kom til knæende stansning, vendte han sig mod hende og sagde med den fortrolighed, vildt fremmede udviser, når det gælder en fælles skuffelse over offentlig transport. Det var på tide. Hun smilede til ham. Det grånede hår bag på hovedet var ret frem. Et komisk tiltag, der skulle skjule hans skaldede plet. Han måtte være akademiker, men ikke inden for humaniora, da han ellers ville være mere bevidst om sig selv. Han hørte til i en eksakt videnskab. Måske kemi. Før i tiden ville hun have svaret, det må man sige. Dette besønderlige udtryk for samtykke. Og så ville hun have indledt en samtale mellem dem for at se, om man sagde noget, hun ville kunne bruge på sin blog. Folk blev smirret, når man bad dem om at tale om sig selv. Og hvis hun forholdt sig tavs, når de gjorde en pause, fortalte de mere. De var opdraget til at udfylde stillheder. Hvis de spurgte, hvad hun lavede, gav hun dem et vagt svar. Jeg skriver en livsstilsblok. For hvis hun havde sagt, jeg skriver en anonym blok, der hedder Rasende. En sort ikke amerikaners forskellige observationer om sorte amerikanere, tidligere kendt som nære, ville det gøre dem ubehageligt tilpas. I think this is the perfect introduction to uh, Ifimelu, the main character, who is in a way at the top of her American stay now yes. because she has this very successful blog and she's going to have her hair done and so on. But in reality, she's not really happy. She feels fat and has cement in her soul. 
I thought that was too much to bear for one woman. <laughs> what is the matter with Ifimelo? <laughs> she, she was going through a bad phase. Um, <laughs> you know what, I, I imagine that she... I think for me this book is, is a lot, it's a lot about, about longing mm. for home. Just lo longing in general, but um, more specifically longing for home and, and what home means. And um, I guess whether you can go home again after you've left. And for her, the cement in her soul was just a, a form of homesickness. Homesickness seems too easy a word to use, but a kind of longing for something more and sometimes not being sure what it is you're longing for but still feeling a sense of longing. But she is feeling fairly sure about what it is that she is longing for, this going back to Nigeria, isn't she's, it? She, she's not entirely sure that she's made the right decision. She's sort of trying to be, she's trying to pep herself up and say yes. this is the right thing, but, but she has her doubts. But she, she does a wonderful thing. She, she sees signs everywhere. She connects with people that she normally wouldn't connect with, and she takes things in that, that really are not her style. Yes. <laughs> Which is, I think, a consequence of her being uncertain. So she chooses to see signs in everything. If the sun rises, she thinks it means that my visit home will go well. <laughs> <laughs> but she's going through the hairdressers. And this is the wonderful, one of the many wonderful things about your book is that you take the, one of the smallest and most intimate uh, female universes, the hairdressers, mm. and especially uh, perhaps the African braiding hair salon, and f like a small box scenery, the whole story, like an Aladdin's lamp, she gets her hair rubbed and out comes this amazing story. How, what made you think of, of putting her into this? That's actually quite a lovely image. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, because I really, I mean, a lot of it came from my own experience, which is that I have spent way too much time in African <laughs> hair breeding salons <laughs> over the past 15 years. And... And I'm fascinated by it. It's, it's, a, there's a, it's a subculture for me. It's, um, it's, I think it says a lot, it goes beyond hair. I mean, I think hair is important, but it goes beyond hair. And it says a lot about, about immigration, about what it means to be African outside of Africa. And I would go to these um, breeding salons and take notes all the time, because often the characters were hilarious. <laughs> and, um, and they were mostly Francophone um, African women. But then you would have all these other women come in, African-Americans, Anglophone African women, um, the rare white woman who wanted to do a Bo Derek hairstyle. Um, <laughs> that is so old-fashioned. <laughs> well, but you know, she wanted to show that she was down with Africa. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so she, she got her hair in cornrows. But, and I would be fascinated by it because I would also also, I, I always sensed, um, maybe because I, maybe I romanticized too much, but, but there was always for me also a kind of beautiful sadness about watching these women who were making new lives, but also were putting on and taking off different versions of themselves. Mm. 
And, and sometimes the children would come as well, sometimes to help out, sometimes to just hang around in the hair salon. And I would watch them. And, and just even the interplay of a certain kind of Africanness, but also a new Americanness, was always fascinating to me. So I wanted to try and capture that in the novel. I don't think that I've seen in literature the African hairbreading salon um, deconstructed. <laughs> and I felt it was an important subject too. Yeah. <laughs> Your hair looks fantastic, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. But this, this one was made in a hair salon in Lagos, which is an entirely different planet. Yeah. <laughs> Equally interesting, but... What's the difference? Huh. <laughs> Somebody there, seems to know. <laughs> yes, I think there's a Nigerian here. <laughs> no, it's just like, I think the... the that African hairbreading salons in, in the US, I mean, clearly a very, it's, it's a subculture of a multicultural thing. And in Nigeria, it isn't. In Nigeria, um, hair salons are very interesting, but, you know, if anything, what you learn in Nigerian hair salons are the different levels of female imperial power in its different manifestations. Wow and also the different levels of um, female-to-female unkindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's difficult not to talk about hair. It does really uh, play a role in, yeah. in the novel, and, and uh, there is a lot about hair that I didn't know. I mean, it's not that I don't struggle with my hair, and I did make an effort tonight, but... <laughs> uh, but I... <laughs> But I will tell you that um, the thing about wigs, for instance, I had no idea. And uh, the thing about the burns and the the whole hassle that it is was kind of... Yeah, you laugh because, you know, (laughs) how would I I know? Exactly. But but I am pleased to hear that. And I've heard that from many people. And I laugh only because really I'm happy to hear that. Because then how would you know? And I think even that says a lot about one of the, one of the I guess, points I wanted to make with this novel, which is that, that the hair of black women is so little understood and so little known that it's very easy to, to attach assumptions to it. And it's easy, for example, to say that a woman doesn't look professional because she has her hair in a certain way. But if you understand that, maybe that's the way her hair grows on her head. And she, you know, that she, and she doesn't want to have to put chemicals in it to look professional. Mm-hmm. And that even the very definition of professional is something that's based on, on an ideal that isn't a black woman's. Right? So it's, it's really that the world, <laughs> it's really that, you know, and, and um, so when people say to me, oh, I didn't know this, I think, well, I'm pleased because I really do believe in, in the importance of cross-cultural conversations. I think that it's the, way to, um, it's the way to better understanding. It's the way a friend of mine who read this book and who's a dear close friend and who's an Englishman, a white Englishman, and he said, after he read it, he said the thing that most struck him he said, I didn't know Michelle Obama's hair doesn't grow like that. <laughs> okay, that's kind of cute. That much I knew. I just <laughs> but he didn't. He no, didn't he didn't. Know. So he assumed that she, that she wakes up and her hair has that texture. Fantastic. 
But there is also a part in the book that discusses Michelle Obama's hair. And it seems to be a kind of a wish, wishful thinking, at least, that what would happen if we talk about role models if Michelle Obama went a bit more frizzy? Uh, <laughs> you know why I wouldn't even answer for it? I wouldn't call it going a bit more frizzy. I would call it if she stopped the straightening. Yeah. Because the frizzy, it's actually her. That's how the, you know, if, if she stopped the straightening, um, it was something wishful. I mean, it wasn't at all, because I, mean, um, I really adore Michelle Obama. I know you do. And, um, and, I, and for me, she's an example of a woman who, a black woman, who is very keen to, to she fits all the definitions of mainstream black respectability. You have to straighten your hair, and even the kids now have to straighten their hair. And, and I wonder, are they doing it with a relaxed cell, with heat? And I just, you know, I worry about how uncomfortable it must be for the poor kids. But I, <laughs> I think for me, really, it was just a larger question of if Michelle Obama had natural hair, Barack Obama would not have won. He would not have won. It's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad and it seems shallow, and, but it is true. Because particularly in America, there are all of these assumptions attached to natural black hair. If Michelle Obama had dreadlocks or an afro or cornrows, she might be thought to be um, radical, black panther, difficult. It's, it's, it's rather shocking. I mean, we can make fun of it, but it's, it's really sad. I think it is very yeah. sad. I think it is very sad. So you have, you have a, a black president, but we're not all there. You can't be too black. No. Um, the, yeah, the, the ways, because you know, and when you think about it as well, I mean, even the, the kind of enthusiasm and joy that we had, that many people in the world had when Barack Obama became president, I think in itself was a statement about, about the, 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 I mean, why were we so happy? Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, because he was the first. Right. But I mean, I think that for me at some point, and I was one of the happy ones as well. I was in Nigeria with my friends, and we, we stayed up late to watch it. But instead of being objective and stepping back, I'm thinking, why are we so happy? We're happy that he's the first. But it seemed to me that our joy sometimes clouded the larger point, which is it's also a statement of, of how deeply um, exclusionary American society still is, mm. that we're so excited about the black man finally being, you know, 300 years after black people have been in America, a black man is finally the president, and we're so excited. And I'm thinking, I, I just wish that our joy had been tempered by a, a kind of reflection about how, what this says about race today. The reflection came afterwards. Now they don't like him. Yeah, but it's, it's not even about, I mean, no. the reflection is more about, we wanted you to be Jesus Christ and you're not. <laughs> yeah. So it's, well, he wasn't black, was he? So how could he be? Yeah. <laughs> that is a truth. Chimamanda Ifimelo actually wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton. How can you explain that? That's very confusing. Why? <laughs> because, well, no, I wouldn't say it's confusing. I think it's, it's typical of Ifimelo, who is, uh, has many wonderful ways of escaping the cliché. Every yeah. time you think, she goes with this or she goes with that. Ah, uh ah. -uh. 
as they say, ah, ah, or how you say it. <laughs> I'm happy that you're learning Nigerian expressions I'm trying. as well. I'm trying my best. But it has to go a bit quicker. Ah, 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 ah. Oh, that fast? Yeah. My gosh. I'll speed up. <laughs> and it can, it can express, I mean, it can be surprised, it can be, it, it can mean many things. It's very contextual, but. Ah, ah, ah. But it's not, though, because, I mean, in some ways, when, because I follow American politics, I'm very interested. And I am a deep admirer of Hillary Clinton's. And when the, sort of, before the, the Democratic primaries, I, and I don't, I'm not an American citizen by choice, so I don't vote. But I think at the beginning, if I had been an American, if I voted, I would have been a Hillary supporter. I, I just admired her. I thought she was just brilliant and, and wonderful, and, and clearly, of course, I like that she was a woman. Um, That's okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, we're supposed to, it's interesting to me that when you're black or female, or, I mean, and if you like, <laughs> for, if you like public figures that reflect your own identity, you're supposed to be quick to say, oh, it's not just because she's a woman, okay. right? But, <laughs> but if you're a man, <laughs> the assumption is, yeah, you're supposed to support men, but nobody actually thinks about, are you doing it because you're a man and he's a man, and, no, but, I, but I, they, they are the norm. Let's face yeah, it, exactly, they are the norm. Which is why, so, so I suppose my point is I increasingly, I, uh, I want to be open and honest about, I mean, I deeply admired Hillary because she was a woman and because she was a woman who was worthy to be president. But then I read Barack Obama's book and I fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> this happens. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's also a book about literature yeah. because the whole notion of, of America for, for Ifumelu in a way comes from Obinza's obsession with, with all American and, and also with literature. Yes. I think, I think probably all of my writing has something to do with just celebrating books because I love books. And, and books mean so much to me and books have formed much of my worldview, and, and I wanted Americana, and Ifemel is not a reader, at least not in the beginning, which is very unlike me. Yeah. But I, and, and so in some ways, Obinze, I'm Obinze, and Obinze is me, but I didn't have that kind of obsession with America, but I had friends who did, mm. who knew everything about American history, had never come close to America itself, but could sort of recite to you all the presidents, that kind of thing. And... And I think, and then Ifemelo, I wanted this also to be a journey of somebody who goes from not being a reader to being a reader and how it changes her life oh. and how, how reading has real and practical consequences for her. It helps her with her, her homesickness. It helps her with um, adapting to this new country so that it wasn't just, I mean, that reading actually has sort of a utilitarian <laughs> view of literature. But I, I, I wrote it down, but I tried to see how many books and references oh. I could find, and I'm sure I didn't find them all because it, it was a, an idea that came to me this afternoon. But at least Graham Greene plays a, a, a role with the heart of the matter, because Obinza's mother yes. loves this book. Yes. And um, I think Ifemelo finds it morose, or is that you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not in the book. It's the character. I know. <laughs> no, Obinze finds it. A bit too morose. Yeah, yeah, he just doesn't understand his mother's obsession with it. No. But, but his, his finding it that way is also partly a, 
result of his America obsession. So that everything that's not American just immediately isn't good enough. Yeah. And Graham Greene is Too the British. most English you can yeah, get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it, but I mean, it's a, it's a book that plays out in Africa. It does, and it, it's also a book that, that um, I think there are people who are surprised that I love that novel, and I do. I am surprised. Ah. I love that novel, but I'm surprised that ah. you do. I do because I find it an honest novel, but an, a novel that doesn't have malice. And, I, and, and there's a, I think there's a difference. <laughs> I think there are many novels that have been written about Africa that are Africa, deeply... The way you say it, Africa. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that are deeply ignorant and often quite malicious. Mm. Graham Greene, I just, I, I think that there's a beautiful sadness about that book that I, I really connect to. But also just the portrayal of, of these people's lives and the sense that... He's very honest about the, the power structures of that time, of sort of colonial, I guess, Sierra Leone or Liberia, we're not really sure. And I admire that. But at, at its heart, it's really this melancholy man and love. Yeah, two yeah. things that you really like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whereas you don't like uh, Naples, a bend in the, what is it? A bend, bend in the river. In the river, yes, of course. This is actually the white woman who comes to have her hair done. She's going to visit Africa. I don't remember where she's going. She's going to several places yeah. because she wants to really do, do Africa. Yeah. And she has read this amazing uh, book, she says, and it's, you don't mention the author, but you do do the title, so it's not so subtle to find out who it is. And, <laughs> and then uh, Ifimelo makes a review in the book. Was that not a funny day at the office? I mean, <laughs> imagine getting back at Naples in your book, and there it is, and it's not a newspaper, it just go away. <laughs> yeah, but I think I should say, I, I think that the novel has its merits. I don't think it's, I mean, there's some novels I read, and I think, why did anybody publish this? <laughs> but, but, but A Bend in the River is not one of them. I think it has its merits. I can understand somebody who says, I liked it. Um, when I first read it, I didn't really, I just, I was indifferent to it. And for me, it's important to connect emotionally um, with, with a novel. But I, for me, what was then very annoying was to be told by somebody, not in a hair salon, <laughs> I don't presume, that it was the most honest book about Africa. And, and I found it very annoying because really what that person was saying and what people who think that really mean is that a book about Africa that confirms all the negative stereotypes is somehow true. But it's not a literary judgment, it's a political judgment. Yes. And it annoyed me very much, so I thought I would throw it into the novel. Laugh, <laughs> <laughs> there it went. Well. She, however, doesn't like this white woman in the salon, doesn't like uh, Achebe, Chinua no. Achebe. He, she finds it, it a bit quaint. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, that may be one of your favorite novels, yes. Things uh, Fall Apart. Yes. Because I was, when I was uh, reading Purple Hibiscus, your first book, it, it's almost the first sentence. <laughs> Is that not correct? Yeah, no, it's true. Things were falling apart. Yeah. In the, yeah. So, 
So this is literature with the literature, and, and this is why, it, I mean, it can almost be difficult to make a conversation, because I have been finding thousands of, of sentences, and I, oh, but I could also just quote this and quote that, and it's, it's really so, it's also interesting and so beautifully written. But I thought we could talk about different levels of being an immigrant in this book, because uh, Ify Melo comes to America uh, and with a scholarship. Yeah. It doesn't get her all the way, but it, and she has to make a living. Yeah. And uh, Obinse later, if, who is uh, Ifimelo's love, the love of her life, love at, the love at first sight, because there's also a love at first laugh <laughs> uh, with another man. But Obinse is the man, and uh, he goes to London at a certain point to, to make his way through, but with no scholarship and having a hard time. But they actually go through a kind of similar hard time. Yes, but, I, but, but Obinze's experience is very much shaped by his being undocumented. Yes. So he goes to, he doesn't, his visa expires. And so he has to live, he has to live as a shadow of himself. He has to live as somebody else because the only way he can walk is with somebody else's papers. And, and I was very curious, I mean, his story is based on a number of interviews with real people because that's, that's quite normal for, mm. you know, for many people. And, and I wonder what that does to your to your soul, really. I mean, people are very practical about it. You know, I have to walk, I have to send money back home. But I've wondered about what it does to you, the things that, that you don't let yourself dwell on because you have to be pragmatic. And, and I also wanted to, um, Emily, it's a bit easier for her, I think, because she's documented. Even though, at, you know, when, her visa, when she's done with her studies, she has to figure out how to get a job and stay on. But, it means that her experience is not as, um, she, she doesn't really, she doesn't live in shadow. She deals with disorientation, and, but at least, she, at least she bears her name. Yeah. yeah. That's very important. Yes. But isn't there a certain, no, that's, okay. Obinse at a certain point has to have a different name. Yeah, because he, he, he walks with somebody else's um, uh, papers and yeah, papers. Uh, number. And yeah which means that he has to bear somebody else's name, and which means he has to remind himself every day that this is my name, even though it really isn't. <laughs> and then there's Auntie Uchu, who also goes to have a career in, in uh, America, which is not easy. She's a doctor, and she leaves Nigeria because... Actually, she leaves Nigeria because a relationship ended very badly. Mm -hmm. And we won't give out the details. Right. We can all, we can, we can, I don't know how many of you have already read it, but I suppose that we must not put in everything. Yeah. Just. So she goes to America. <laughs> suggesting to, <laughs> to start over. And she's a doctor. And she, she has a difficult time. I wanted to write about the kind of, I think that the prevailing notion of, of African immigration that many people in the West have is, Know, very much about the African single story. It's, it's people who are refugees from war, people who have fled terrible poverty, that kind of thing. People who are expected to be deeply grateful to have been allowed into mm -hmm. a Western country. But the, the immigration that I know and that the people I know know is very different. It's, it's, you know, it's educated people who are middle class who often choose to leave because they want more, because they have dreams. Um, 
but also about the, the and who, who end up being doing very well in the, in the countries they go to. So if Emelo does well, and Tiuju, who has a hard time at the beginning adjusting, you know, ends up being this doctor with a job um, and a life and an independence and all of those things. But there's still a sense of longing. Yes. Yeah. There are things that one loses in addition to gaining. Because it's also, I mean, immigration is one word for it, but another word which I think could apply to more of your novels and the characters in them is uh, the, the searching of fitting in. How do you yeah. fit in, yeah. in different contexts? Yeah. And I mean, of course, immigration is, is a very sort of touchable thing, yeah. but, but it's also, it, I mean, there are several ways of being uncomfortable yeah. uh, about who you are, where you are, why you are the way you are. And uh, at a certain point, Ifimelu says, I think it's with one of her lovers, if I only could feel what I want to feel, <laughs> that would be so much easier. Yeah. I, think, I think that is true, the, the idea of, um fitting in, but I think even more, it's the question of how do I fit in, what does it mean, but even more, the other question of should I fit in? Yes. And, and I think Ifemelu, for Ifemelu, the answer is, I think, that she, one doesn't necessarily have to. That, and so I like to think of this novel as um, that cliched thing of she finds herself in the mm -hmm. end. So maybe I'll do a revised version that will be a self-help book, How to Find Your True Authentic <laughs> Self. Yeah. Um, write a blog. But I, I do think that, I'm, yeah, I'm very interested in, um, in what it means to be part of a group, but also in, in, in what it means to be different. Mm -hmm. I think if I had to have a political position, if I run for office, my, my major platform will be, let's create room for difference. Yeah. Because, and I say this from, from a personal perspective, because I, you know, I'm very much, like Ifemelu, sort of, I'm, I'm, you know, fiercely, proudly Nigerian, fiercely, proudly African, um, fierce, fier <laughs> fiercely, proudly Igbo. Um, you know, I think that the very little about me that is good is a result of, of my having grown up in Nigeria, of my having sort of this, this rootedness in, in who I am. But at the same time, I've always felt just ever so slightly removed from, from things. There are things that I know I'm supposed to like that I don't like, and things that I'm supposed to believe that I don't necessarily believe. And being part of a group means that sometimes you have to pretend that you believe it, <laughs> even though you don't. Mm -hmm. So, when, and so, in, in Ibu land, and I think in, in much of sub-Saharan Africa, the idea of children and, and the idea of the role of, of femaleness being reproduction is central. I mean, it's not something you question. Of course you must, I mean, children, that's... And while I love children, um, especially when they don't belong to me, um, <laughs> there's, um, there, isn't, there isn't any room for the, for the conversation and for for the fact that there might be women who don't in fact share this kind of ideal. Mm. You can't even have the conversation. There's no room for it because you're immediately silenced. And, and the kind of label you might get is you're not being, you know, it's not our culture. And, and I sometimes find myself wondering how many women are silent about what they're really thinking and mm. feeling. Yeah. Not just in this aspect, but in, in, in lots of things. Oh, yeah. 
In general. In general. And also not just in Nigeria, by the way, I want to say. I mean, Nigeria yeah. is where my heart is, so I talk about it all the time. But, but everywhere in the world, I think that that question of belonging. And, and I guess I have to say I'm particularly interested in the experience of women, because I think that idea of silencing to be part of a, you know, that idea of conforming yes. is something that's very gendered. It's, it's mostly women all over the world who are expected to. Can we, when you say a group, could we call it family? Because family means a lot in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Family means a lot, yes. Family means a lot to me. Family means a lot to, to the people I, I write about. And, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm not, uh, there's a, I think a lot of contemporary literary fiction assumes that there's certain things one has to be ironic about, mm -hmm. such as family. Right? If you're going to write about your parents, you know, it better be dark. <laughs> and, and complicated, and, and, and my sense of family is not really like that. I, my family is actually quite happy, and um, we actually really love one another. And, <laughs> and, and, you are, and there are a lot of you, so yes, there's the a fifth, lot of love. Yeah, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of laughter. Um, I'm the fifth of six children, and my parents have been married for 50 years, and they're, and they're actually good friends. Um, <laughs> you know, they bicker very often, because you can't live with somebody for 50 years without sort of bickering all the time. But it's very charming to watch them. Even the bickering for me is an act of love. <laughs> but at the same time, um, and so for me, family is a, is, a, is a warm, fuzzy thing, mostly. But I think it's possible to, to have a very positive attitude to family, but still find oneself questioning certain things and, and you know, in other words, that, that the idea of do I belong, how do I belong, doesn't have to come with the baggage of negativity. At least it doesn't for me. Around the family, or perhaps as you would say, a part of the family, there are always aunts and they are always wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because even within a happy family, you need an aunt to get relief from the family sometimes. <laughs> no, actually, you know, it, it, for me, the family is actually, it's an extended thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. My, my definition of family is quite broad. And so my siblings, of course, my parents, but also my cousins. I have cousins who are as close to me as, as my siblings. And, and I think that as a child growing up, I had aunts who played major roles in my life simply by being present. Mm. And I've modeled, I mean, and to you not so much, but in, um, in Purple Hibiscus, I have yet another auntie yes. character. <laughs> <laughs> I think that my next novel will be called The Aunties. The Aunties, yeah. <laughs> and, and that character in Purple Hibiscus is modeled after an aunt of mine who, maybe it's also a way of, I mean, I'm just thinking about this now, it's not something I've thought about, maybe it's also a way for me to, to write about female characters, but with a certain kind of distance. Because if I wrote about, if I wrote about mothers and sisters, there's a, and it can be too close. Auntie is close enough, but it gives you a bit of distance to, to do things with the character, I think. Du har lyttet til Live for the Kongelige Bibliotek. Dette var første del af samtalen mellem Shimamanda Ngochi Aditi og kulturjournalisten Sønderif Bjerg. Du kan lytte til anden del her i din podcast-app. Denne podcast er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.